Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Push Through Podcast. I'm your host, Keisha Reeves. I'm a licensed professional counselor with a group practice here in Atlanta, Georgia, where I specialize in women as well as maternal mental health. Here on the podcast, we'll talk about womanhood, motherhood, and a little bit of everything in between. So sit back, relax, and enjoy a quick chat with me. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Push Through Podcast, and I am excited to have Dr. Courtney Floyd James, just to give her a little bit of background as I introduce her. She is a nurse scientist and a pediatric nurse practitioner. She holds a PhD in nursing from Bernadine F. Lewis College of Nursing and Health Profession at Georgia State. Did I say that right? I think so. <laughs> Georgia State <laughs> University, um, as well as an MS in nursing specializing in pediatric primary care, also from Georgia State University, and a BS from in nursing from University of South Carolina in Columbia. She So she's very educated, basically, all of that <laughs> means she's smart. And, um, and Courtney and I got connected in talking about Black Muck motherhood and um black maternal mental health and all of those things which we'll dive into but welcome to the podcast courtney thank you thank you so much i'm so excited you know i stand you and your instagram so i'm just excited to be here thank you courtney well i i am a huge fan of just all the work that you've done all of the research um all just everything that you've contributed to the community so before we like dive, dive into it, where are you originally from? Oh, you know, I always answer that very straightforward question in a very complex way. So I was born in Spartanburg, South Carolina. Mm-hmm. So uh, you may hear the Southern drawl. I do. <laughs> of course you do. <laughs> and then uh, my father was in the army. So much of my childhood was also in Stuttgart, Germany. So mm-hmm. Uh, that that was the bulk of my childhood. Very different places, South Carolina and Germany. Awesome. Okay. And you are a mother of how old is your daughter? She just turned twelve. Well, just but in January, Capricorn season. She oh, just turned twelve. She's almost a teenager. You have a tween. Honey, she thinks she's a teenager already. <laughs> I said, "Oh, you preteen." Well, it's still teen. I said, "Okay, okay, I'll give you that." <laughs> now, okay, so usually, um, the birthing parents that I have on the show typically will talk about their birthing experience. But being that you have a tween, um, you're raising a black daughter. How is it raising someone that's a little bit older? How has motherhood been for you your whole journey? Yes. So I think. When she was much younger, I felt like, okay, I have to lead her the right way. I have to make sure that she doesn't get hurt. I have to protect her, Um, which I still do. But we've moved out to Los Angeles for my postdoc fellowship out here doing research at UCLA. And so I had to go to therapy. I enrolled her in therapy Mm. to adjust to the change to make sure she had all the resources, advice, guidance she needed. And so my anxiety was at an all-time high. Mm -hmm. So what I learned through my therapist, as well as hers, because her therapist was different than my therapist, Mm -hmm. um, that I have to let her experience things as a tween. 
um, and then trust that she'll do the things that I've taught her and raised her to do, but also give her that leeway to come back to me mm. and share those experiences and and walk her through her choices. Mm. So it's it's a different it's a different time. <laughs> no, I, I I totally hear that. I have been reading a lot on like black mother, like research on black motherhood, attachment, bonding, parenting styles, um, generational parenting styles, mm-hmm. and I feel like that's just a common trend. Rather, you're a black mother or just a general mother, like you can have your anxiety about what you could see potentially happening to your child, and you wanting to be protective of them. Or um, kind of block any potential hazards that could come their way, but then also guiding them, letting them experience exactly. it for themselves, and that's the the hard part. <laughs> yes, it's a it's a major transition, like going from school age to like adolescence. Because when she's younger, you know, my job is to block her. No, don't touch the Mm -hmm. stove. No, don't walk under this. Don't put that in your mouth. Mm -hmm. You know, it's totally blocking and removing any harm. But as she's gotten older, I've learned that I've wanted to say, don't talk to that person. Mm -hmm. They are sending inappropriate texts or I heard him cursing. You can't be around this person. And I've learned that it may just push her more into that environment because she's more curious because I'm totally trying to remove her from that. And so I've learned that that's not my job in this stage right now is to have those conversations about what's inappropriate, what you should and should not text, what you should and should not be um, discussing and how you should choose or not choose to be in those environments and trust that she makes those right decisions and that if she's in that environment, that she will feel comfortable to come back and talk with me about that situation and why she chose to either stay or remove herself. So, yeah, it's, yeah. it's, it's a transition for us all. <laughs> I can imagine. Um, who was a huge uh, influence on you as a child as far as like, motherhood like was it your own mom was it multiple women in the family aunts grand grandmother mm-hmm. who who was that maternal I, person I it was every older woman in my family so of course my mother mm-hmm. because my mother was just you know she and still she thinks the world of me mm-hmm. but I was like her she always says you're my first best friend you Aww. know um so we always had a good time but grandmothers and aunties, mm-hmm. you can do no wrong in in their eyes as far as me growing up. So if I wanted something, they made sure that I got it. If I did something bad or wrong and my mom was trying to let me know it was wrong, they were defending me mm-hmm. even though it was wrong. I mean, it wasn't anything major. It's like mm-hmm. little silly kid stuff. But they were my protectors and I say my enablers but <laughs> for good things. So... They definitely um, showed me through their actions what unconditional love mm. really is. And I'm so thankful that, that I had that. That's awesome. Were there anything mm-hmm. that they exhibited that you wanted to take on in your own parenting style? Oh, that's a good question. Mm-hmm. Yes. So my grandmother, um, one of her, she had 
three, three children. No, I'm sorry, four. Um, and it did not matter what age they were, what choices they had made or what they were currently going through. They knew that if they ever needed anything, my grandmother was there. Mm. Now, me, myself, I feel like there are boundaries mm. that you should set mm-hmm. in supporting or enabling your children. But at the same time, it's trying to find that balance. And I think my grandmother had a good balance that I can't quite articulate. Yeah. But she could be supportive and I have an extra bedroom. You can stay here. I understand you're having a hard time. Mm-hmm. But while you're here, mm. I'm going to let you know <laughs> why you're in the situation because right. of your own actions. So it was that I'm always here for you. My door is always open, but I'm I'm giving you the business while you're here. <laughs> so, <laughs> I was like, that's, that's what I want because we see... I mean, I know I personally see parents who are one extreme or the other. Right. It's like tough love, tough love. Not even the love. It's just toughness or just you can walk all over me. I'll give you whatever you need. Um, but my grandmother was, was right in the middle. So I loved it. That's amazing. Yeah. I, I, I love that balance as well because you're able to still support them. But it, let it be like a learning lesson as well. We're not going to act like mm-hmm. this didn't happen. We're going to talk about it. <laughs> exactly. We're going to talk about it, especially when you don't feel like talking about it. Because that's when you need to talk about it. And I would be there, you know, younger, probably as a teenager, like, oh, is she going to talk about this when we all sit here? <laughs> yes. Yes, because this is a family issue. And we're all talking about it. Let's all and learn. I found that was different. Because <laughs> oftentimes, I feel like in in black culture, in the black community, we, we say we're there are things that we should talk about as a family that we don't, or we definitely don't want like outside people to know certain things. My grandmother did not care. Mm. She would talk about it. And then if you acted brand new, quote unquote, if you act like you didn't do anything while we was at church or out of place, she would let you, she would remind you Mm. of what you did. And we'd be like, Ooh. (laughs) But you know, I kind of like respect that a a bit because I can see how, like, to your point, like, with black family, you know how in black families there can be secrets and things, you know, behind closed doors. And mm-hmm. so such and such had a baby by so-and-so, and we didn't talk about how she got into that situation. So all of the other girls in the family aren't privy to that lesson versus had we all discussed it as a family then we all could have learned a little bit of something. Absolutely. Granted, you know, it could be embarrassing to Sally for her business to be out there at the same time. (laughs) But we talk about it. (laughs) Very. But yeah, my grandmother, yeah, she was was talking about it. And she talked about it. She didn't sugarcoat anything. Like, that's how most people remember my grandmother. She passed away uh, shortly after I graduated um, from undergrad. Mm -hmm. But... um, those who know her know she was not one to mince words. She didn't care who you were, if you were a child or someone her age. Like she was, let, she was saying it how it needed to be said, and she was addressing whatever the issue was. She didn't brush things under the rug, and if it was something that we could all benefit from hearing, we all heard it. Mm. So many lessons. One one thing we were always like, because mm, we called her Panty Kate. I made up that nickname for her. 
when I was a child. I don't know why, mm. um, but it stuck, and everybody called her that. We was like, mm, don't let Panty Cake find out you did that because you're going to be in trouble. It's not even your mom. You know, some people say, don't make me call your dad. Yeah. No, it was Panty Cake. <laughs> yes, you didn't want that. So, okay, so like we opened up and said, you are very highly educated. Um, what, what were some things that inspired you or what was it about research and nursing that kept you wanting to learn more and more? Mm-hmm. So, uh, anyone who's a nurse or anyone who has continuously went back to further their education may, um, feel me on this, but every time I got a degree, I always said that was the last one. Mm. So when I finished undergrad, I, okay, I'm a nurse. This was hard. I'm not coming back. I'm done. Mm-hmm. Then a few years later, oh, I want to be a nurse practitioner. I want more autonomy. Let me go back to school. Oh. So I just kept going back to learn different aspects of nursing. And so when I was practicing as a nurse practitioner, I was in primary care, even in the hospital. I was taking care of newborns or children all through you know birth to 21. But you're not just taking care of the child. You're also taking care of or educating the parents and, and bonding and making friendships or relationships with entire families. And so during that time as a nurse practitioner, I would notice that there were many moms, um, but especially my, my black mamas, who seemed to be having difficulty or didn't, they seemed like super tired mm-hmm. or, oh, I just, this baby just won't sleep and when will she sleep and I can't get any sleep or just all these stories they would tell me. And if any time I would say, you know, have you talked to your doctor about maybe postpartum depression? Mm-hmm. Do you know what that is? Um, no, no, I don't, I'm not depressed. This is just something that happens as a new mom and it'll pass. You know, I felt like being in the South because when I was Practicing as a nurse practitioner, I was, you know, in Atlanta, surrounding areas. And so um, I felt like a lot of the moms would tell me, like, Bible scriptures Mm. that other people in the family had told them to kind of let them know if you just hold on, you know, Mm -hmm. in the morning, you know, or this too shall pass. All these things that may give people hope, but it's not giving them help. Right. And so it was not often acknowledged that they could possibly have postpartum depression. It was just, oh, this is just normal part of being a new mom. I'm supposed to be tired. I'm not supposed to want to get up and cook. I'm not supposed to want to do all these things. And so for me, it sparked a curiosity and, and really a desire to help and make a difference um, in these moms and in my own experience. Um, that research should be done mm-hmm. to try to see how black culture or black women's perception of depression mm-hmm. or what even depression looks like for us. Mm-hmm. Maybe it doesn't look how all the pamphlets say it looks. Mm-hmm. Maybe we are still going to work. Maybe we're not constantly crying. Or if we are, we're crying in the car on the way to work because we still have to do all those things. Um, and I just found that there wasn't, a lot of information out there for us tailored to us and definitely you know a lack of information by us so I went back to school again <laughs> to get my PhD to do that work to be to be that person that does that work and and contribute 
to that change because mm. I feel like as a nurse and a researcher, I have the benefit of having practiced and provided care and yeah. know what goes on behind the scenes with the screening tools and yeah. the referrals and linking the care. But I'm also, you know, I also get the research part, but I'm also a mom and I am that black woman who had those difficulties and didn't seek help as well. So right. just all the different, I don't want to say faces, um, all the different hats that I wear based on the spaces that I'm occupying kind of informs what I do and how I think and, you know. Right. Now, I'm, I'm going to ask more about the research, but just out of curiosity, mm-hmm. how did you balance going back to school and being a mother at the same time? Oh, yeah, there was no balance. <laughs> it was absolutely... Um, <laughs> I often, I don't even know where this quote comes from, but it's like, it was the best of times and it was the worst of times. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Like, oh my goodness, because I had my daughter in January of 2010, but I didn't finish my master's degree until December of 2010. Mm. So I took, you know, a, a little bit of time off from school to just, get adjusted what I thought was enough time to get adjusted but it wasn't but if you don't return in a certain amount of time you lose all the credits you had and have to start over so in that time I was doing so many clinicals like throughout the day sometimes overnight if I was in the emergency department and still having to get my daughter and asking her father or her grandmother somebody to watch her Mm -hmm. And I was still working full time too mm. at night as a nurse in the hospital. So there was no balance. I think after I got her to bed, I'd stay up until like one or two to study mm. or do some work and then be up at six, if not soon. And I'm still breastfeeding. I breastfed mm. her until she was 18 months old. So it was no balance. Um, and it was very hard. I was very passionate about finishing school to do all the things that I wanted to do as a nurse practitioner, but I was also very miserable. And I think I was, um, what I now have the language to say is like high functioning depression. Yeah. Um, but there are parts of my life at that time period, which was a very happy time period because my child was, you know, born and turning one and, you know, they go through so many milestones during that time, but I didn't remember a lot of it because, Mm. Of, of the stress and the lack of sleep and just what I was going through. So that was, it was no balance. Uh, getting my PhD was much more balanced. So I was engaged and I had a partner who helped um, share the load of, of parenting and was understanding as far as helping with cooking, cleaning, all that good stuff. So it was much more balanced. And I, I my main stress was the degree. It wasn't bills and all the other things so gotcha. yeah wow so you you got through it um I did. your I determination did. sounds like kind of pulled you through it plus also the highs sound like they were really good highs to also be a motivator um even like bringing all that back to the present how do you take care of yourself because you're still like doing a fellowship so how do you take time to pour back into you mm-hmm. so Oh, that, listen, um, (laughs) that is why I have an ongoing relationship with my therapist, Mm -hmm. because I, 
have often existed in this unbalanced world mm-hmm. of just productivity, productivity, productivity. It mm-hmm. doesn't matter if you're tired, you have to get this done or you can't graduate, you won't get the degree. And so now I have all the degrees um, and I've been forced to find that balance because you can't go at a hundred right. indefinitely. Um, and so we have, we have learned, I have learned from my therapist tools to force myself to balance and take a break. So I will plan out, okay, this is what I'm going to get done this week, mm-hmm. or this is when this manuscript is due. Mm. And I will only work on this manuscript for one hour, two days a week mm-hmm. or, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Because before I would work on something until it's finished without eating without spending time with my child, my husband, you know, I got, I have to get this finished. Uh, and not even at the deadline, like it would be finished early, but that was just my mentality of constantly producing. Um, and so now living in LA, we are two blocks from, from Venice beach. Um, so I need to come out there and visit you. (laughs) I do. Marina Del Rey is amazing. (laughs) Um, we walk 10 minutes to the beach. So if I ever feel like I'm, I'm trying to force this writing assignment, the thoughts aren't coming to me. I'll just say, uh, you know, ask my daughter, you want to walk to the beach Mm. or you want to go get some of this ice cream or it's always something doing LA Mm -hmm. and the weather is always nice i joke because i think it's like 62 today and i'm like oh my gosh it's breathing oh wow um, yeah i've totally acclimated i don't i i would probably turn into an icicle in atlanta now but um so just just reminding myself you need to step away you need to get a break it's not that intense need to be so productive you know your timeline is totally different now so just just stepping away just reminding myself it's okay it's okay to take a break right okay so tell me a little bit about your dissertation on racial identity of black mothers and its relationship with their maternal functioning postpartum depressive symptoms and bond with their infants what kind of drove you to want to do that type of work and even continuing and i know that you said um having been able to work as a nurse seeing moms who didn't have the language to know what it was or having that religious background growing up in the South, being a black woman as your yourself, even like, and I know we've had our own conversations, but, and I know, I know the answer to this, but why do you think that there isn't data? Why do you think that there isn't more research available? I had did a, I facilitated a seminar Friday. One of the people that were attending, it was on black maternal mental health. One of the people that were attending was saying, although this is a myth, she did think when she was younger that postpartum depression was just for white women because she never saw on television any black women experiencing it. And what are your thoughts about all of that? So I am very intentional. Most of the time before I give any talks, um, especially to like groups of people who are unfamiliar with me, I talk about why I do the work that I do and why I'm in that space um, to let people know my intention. Um, I think oftentimes with research in the past and probably still ongoing, even though I think um, the climate and now we're more aware of this, is that people go 
and do research on communities that they're not a part of um, just to get publications mm. or just to get information. And there's no accountability. There's no um, feeling that these results reflect me. Mm. And I don't want to put something out into the atmosphere that's harmful because that will also be hurting me mm -hmm. because I am a member of this community. And so I'm very intentional in doing work with black women because there's an aspect of culture, um, maybe even religion that depends on the region that you're in, of course, that can influence your experiences as a mother. Mm -hmm. So I don't independently do research on uh, non-binary or, or trans parents mm -hmm. because I'm not of that community. Mm -hmm. I would love to partner with someone mm -hmm. and do that work, but I don't have the insight or the experience to fully understand and kind of look at the concepts that are important to that community and their um, experience as parents. Right. So I wouldn't do that. So I feel like when people who are not black or not black women um, or they do not identify as such, um, do not know about all the different cultural influences on our experiences as mothers right. or our experiences with depression or other difficulties in becoming a mother. And so that may be why there's a lack of looking at culture. I think when I look at the research, the, the thing that is ever-present is stigma. Oh, it's stigmatized so they don't get treatment. Oh, it's stigmatized so they don't talk about it. And that may have been true generations before, mm -hmm. but I think this generation, I'm 38, um, and younger generations are more open to going to therapy. We talk about therapy all the time. It's on Instagram. It's on social media. You know, I go to your page and share, mm -hmm. and it's, it's part of our conversation now. It's not this taboo um, thing. It. I mean, the affordability or the access may still be an issue, but to talk about mental health is not totally foreign right. in black families, black communities anymore. So I just feel like there's there's a lack of representation mm -hmm. because maybe we weren't always the people doing the work. Yeah. But definitely, I think it's also the intention of the work that was done. I completely agree. I'm going to give you a short story. So mm -hmm. when I was putting this seminar together on Black maternal mental health, and I was researching some additional approaches for therapists to do interventions with clients that were Black birthing parents experiencing perinatal mood and anxiety disorders. And there was one, I'm going to send you the, the authors of the research article later because I can't mm -hmm. think of it off the top of my head. But it was one on um, narrative therapy for uh, people of black people, I think it said. I can't think of the name exactly. But it was, I looked up the authors and they weren't um, black researchers. And it was talking about how narrative therapy you typically use during trauma. And it's to account the experience in which you had. Great for anyone who's experiencing any type of birth trauma or anything like that. But they were saying how it could be applied for anyone who has like antepartum anxiety or postpartum anxiety. And it's being able to reform narrative therapy in a way almost like you are manifesting 
the narration in which you would want your experience to be versus the fear in which you think it is your reality. And in one sense, I, I could understand a piece of it. Like instead of surrendering to, you know, I'm having this black child, what if something happens to them? Or what if I don't live after I give birth? You know, I, I'm so anxious about that. And instead being able to say, this is what my experience will be like. These are what my providers will be like. This is what it will be like. However, on the flip side, being that it was written by non-black people, mm -hmm. there is like a romanticization of that a little bit. You know what I mean? Like you, mm -hmm. I, 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 I hear you, but that still is not the reality. Yeah. And I that remember, sounds like this utopian. Yeah, this utopian experience. <laughs> and I remember on Martin Luther King Day, I always try to like watch some um, civil rights movement documentary, and I had watched. Um, the uh, James Baldwin one that was on Netflix and he had this interview it was some night show host and he was just talking about the black experience and there was another it was a white man who came out who was a professor and he was saying you know oh I don't agree with this um, you can be able to identify with people just because you are a writer it, they don't have to be a black person you know you can be on the same level with them because you are a farmer and James was saying I'm still black, though. Like, just because I'm a writer, it doesn't mean that my experience is going to be similar to um, whomever, William Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. It's still going to mm -hmm. be a different experience because of, of how I am treated and because of what it takes for me to be a writer and for my voice to be heard. But I, I totally agree with what you're saying. So is it they're not enough black researchers? They're not getting funded? Or... Is it because they don't want to do any harm to the community? What do you think that that gap is about? So I think um, there are a lot of black researchers. Um, I have a whole community. I mean, we have a whole Twitter community. Mm -hmm. um, they're not all necessarily focused on maternal mental health. So mm -hmm. that's also um, another layer there. But it, yeah, black Black researchers are definitely underfunded um, by the NIH specifically, and they they don't hide that. They, you know, it's well known, and, and they've been getting heat for it. Um, so I, I think there are many things we, in research, we have so many different topics that we can, you know, get more information about. And a lot of focus with maternal health is of course maternal mortality in black women. And so they overlap. But I, the other thing with research is that it takes years for your work to actually make it mm. out into mainstream, <clears throat> not even mainstream, just even within the research community. So there are plenty of studies that I read <clears throat> that were recently published but the actual study was done in like 2015, oh, 2016. Wow. Right. And so there was a huge gap in doing the work, doing the analysis, submitting it for publication. And then when you submit something for publication and it makes it into a journal, it's not necessarily for the people who will be impacted by the research. Mm -hmm. It's for other researchers to learn from, to inform their own research, to cite you know, in their publication, because mm -hmm. that's kind of what academia is about. Um, but there is more work being done, especially like Dr. Monica McLemore, 
who easily comes off the top of my head, um, Dr. Rhea Boyd, um, who is at UCSF, I think, um, San Francisco. There are plenty of others that I cite often, but am blanking mm-hmm. on the names right now, that do community-based uh, or community-partnered research so that it's not just an academic thinking oh, these, this is what I'm interested in learning about black women mm-hmm. and their mental health. Mm-hmm. It's an academic partnering with community members, whether that's through like um, PSI mm-hmm. or, you know, uh, a local organization. Sometimes they'll partner with like community organizations that serve black women. They may partner with midwives or doulas in the community that serve, for example, like black women in South LA, to really hear their voice and include interest that that serves them, that -hmm. these black women, these black mothers specifically want to learn about. Um, So for me, it was kind of eye-opening in collaborating with some black women in the community here in LA um, through their maternal and infant mortality organization through the Department of Public Health. Um, I just asked them, okay, this is the study I'm looking into doing. Is this on the mark or or does this seem Mm. random? Mm -hmm. Does this mirror your experience? And they said, yes, like racism absolutely affects our experiences while we're pregnant and afterwards. So it, it affects the care we receive, um, but it also affects how we parent our children mm-hmm. and it can weigh us down and affect our own mental health, right. which a lot of research has not looked at. Right. But one aspect they said that was very interesting to me that you also just said a little while ago is that fear of dying mm-hmm. because there is so much emphasis on black maternal mortality. Black women die yeah. more than during pregnancy or childbirth, more so than any other yeah. ethnic group. Black women Educated black women die three to four yeah. times more than uneducated right. white women. And so 60%. that's the narrative. Yeah. And it can be overwhelming mm-hmm. and it can consume every aspect that like, oh, let's take, you know, pregnancy pictures or, oh, let's have a gender reveal. But still in the back of your mind, you may be thinking, am I even going to survive? Mm-hmm. Am I even going to be able to raise my baby? Am I going to meet my baby? Yeah. Um, and so it can really affect your mental health that is not anywhere included in any screening tool for depression Mm -hmm. while pregnant or after childbirth. Mm -hmm. And so I just feel like, you know, black women have to be in those spaces um, or non-black researchers have to partner with black women who have been pregnant, who want to become pregnant, who are pregnant to inform their work. Um, I think that's really important. Like you have to include the voices of the people that you hope your work will serve. Even though I'm a black mother, I can't speak for all black women. I can't speak for all black mothers. So I do have to get other voices, other input and perspectives. And I think that's so important. Um, Often when we think about, you know, these poor health outcomes of black women during pregnancy or, or during childbirth, Oftentimes, if, if you see that the research says when you have a black provider, you t- black women tend to do better. Mm-hmm. Um, and while that's amazing um, and wonderful, is, is that realistic right. for every black for woman every black to woman, have right. a black 
practitioner, a midwife, OBGYN, absolutely not. So, I mean, maybe in Wakanda, but not in, <laughs> <laughs> not in the U.S. of A. So, it's what's the next best thing. And I think it is for non-Black people to listen to and include the expertise, the experience, the voices of Black women. Yeah. Because um, that's the only way we'll actually be able to achieve anything is for everyone to to learn. And I think that takes humility from other people to realize I can have all the training, but I still don't have any idea on the experience of black women. Yeah. And what that looks like. So absolutely. Yeah. I, I think you said so that's like the a, issue and the solution. I I'm know. And it is too much. It's you said like a mouthful because I always try to tell my clients that the statistics don't have to determine your fate. And although these numbers are here, it is to inform you, but it is not to create your destiny. Like you can, we can come up with a plan. We can make you feel comfortable. You can have a team that this can be as close to the experience that you want. And, but I do feel like our society now, although well-intentioned is, is just so like in your face, like, um, and that's, that's very difficult and even what you said about having humility with providers, um, I, I've told you about how hard it is to just get in to, to teach providers about screenings in Savannah or in South Georgia. Like, it's just this ego of who are you to tell me, mm-hmm. you know, what I need to do or work with my patients. Um, and it, it should be more than just about bringing babies into this world because you are impacting the entire family. You should want your patient to feel comfortable and safe with you. And have an enjoyable experience of becoming a parent versus ignoring them, dismissing them, coming in and out of the room, not answering questions or taking time to ask questions and giving them that feeling as if they can't ask you questions because you are in such a rush. Mm -hmm. And then there's all Mm -hmm. these things that left unsaid, which continues to perpetuate this statistic. Um, And it just seems like such a huge problem to solve. Huge. And what, 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 Huge. yeah. <laughs> also, what you said is important because even with that narrative story, um, narrative therapy mm-hmm. with non black people creating that, they may be so far removed from what black people experience that they think, oh, you're a mom first and being black shouldn't affect. Mm that childbirth, that birthing experience, your experience as a mom. So let's focus on the positive side. What, what do you want for this birthing experience? Right. And you being in that space and being black and a woman and a therapist, you know, we can't ignore that. Let's not try to remove it. Let's look at your fears. Let's look at your concerns. Mm -hmm. Let's see how that may affect your ideal birthing experience. And then let's make a plan right. to get as close to that as possible. So I feel like our knowledge, awareness, our experience in this racialized society informs how we choose our next steps. So it can choose, it can inform whether your research is harmful and blaming yeah. versus let's get to the root of this. So instead of women, black women on Medicaid have X, Y, and Z outcome. 
and saying, oh, they need to find a doctor sooner or, oh, they need to go to their prenatal visits or they don't go to their postpartum visits. Very blaming, Mm -hmm. very negative, very less blame this individual for their outcomes versus me feeling responsible and a proud member of this community. My narrative and my research may be how does Medicaid coverage fall short mm. of providing mm-hmm. these mothers mm-hmm. with all the resources they need? Yes, the language. Or mm-hmm. what legislation is in place that acts as a barrier mm-hmm. for these women to get the care they need? Mm-hmm. So it can be the same exact data, right. same exact outcome, but what lens yes. are you looking at this with? Mm-hmm. And that's, I think that's the most harmful potentially harmful part of research is the narrative that you choose to spread based on because numbers are numbers right you know people often say numbers aren't biased numbers aren't emotional all these things but the people who interpret those numbers are absolutely and that's when that's when we get into right because imagine if you are a researcher or if you're a provider that picks up this medical journal and you see the headline um, black women on Medicaid don't seek out treatment. Then you'll be like, well, that don't got nothing to do with me. Next page, you know, and you don't even inform yourself. You don't educate yourself to see like the root of what the issue versus if it's medical providers dismissing mm-hmm. Medicaid black mothers, then, oh, let me read more about this. It exactly. definitely could to could really like spread the cause, spread the message, hit more people differently if titled differently for sure Mm -hmm. that's almost like Mm -hmm. pr i feel like (laughs) and and, you know in (laughs) academia depending on how many grants you have determines how much pr cares about how you say what you say so little old me um i'm i'm applying for grants and stuff but there's nobody unless i guess i seek it out um and pay them out of my own pocket there's nobody helping me you know, form this narrative. And there are plenty of people who don't think they need to color their narrative a certain way Mm. to be less harmful. That's relatively new in the literature Mm. because they could say, I'm not saying it, the data said it. The data said that these women aren't getting care. And so they're just strictly reporting on that. And Now, I'm completely like not in academia at all. Not my world. Is there, pardon me, this is a dumb question. But is no, there no such thing? <laughs> yeah, it is such thing. <laughs> <laughs> but is is there like a board of review that can suggest like this is great information? What if we change this title because I can see the harmful it can effects it could have on this community? Is there anybody who mm-hmm. monitors this? That is such a great question, Keisha. <laughs> so technically, yes. So, okay, there are several boards. So when you do research, um, depending on what type of research it is, you have to submit it to an institutional review board that basically says this is ethical or not. Mm -hmm. You're mistreating this population of people in your study or not. Like preventing another Tuskegee, Mm -hmm. um, which Mm -hmm. is why I tell people all the time COVID is not. Tuskegee. But anyway, mm-hmm. that's another another mm-hmm. day. Mm-hmm. But so there are boards that review that. Now, when I have completed my study, I have this paper written up and I want to submit it to a journal. Each journal has a review board. 
of people who will read your manuscript and and offer feedback and may question what you put in there. Um, but that depends on what that review board person looks like. Mm-hmm. So if the reviewer the reviewer might be familiar with maternal health, but that reviewer may not be black or they may not they may commit those same harmful mm. phrases, harmful rhetoric in their own research. Right. So they may not see an issue with what you do. Right. Um, so it's not necessarily there's no regulation to look at that. Right. They're, Unless they, I'm on the review board. Gotcha. And then I'm going to court because I have. Um, there have been pieces that I've read about health equity um, and and essentially causing no harm. And wanting to improve the health outcomes of black mothers in pregnancy and, and during childbirth. And they did not cite a single black researcher in the entire wow. paper. And so I am totally, you know, and they know me. I put my, I, they, it was a, what we call a non-blinded review, meaning that the authors can see who's providing the feedback. Mm-hmm. Not all journals do that either. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes you can remain anonymous in the feedback that you give. Um, and I said, it seems like your work is focused on improving outcomes and hearing and acknowledging black women's experiences. However, you have not cited a single black one mm-hmm. in this entire paper. And there are plenty of black women doing this work. I cannot accept this paper. Mm-hmm. I'm going to need you to read do it. Good um, for you, Courtney. Good for you. <laughs> and I have been called out about my own research, possibly, um, causing harm or being blameful and looking at racial identity. And at first I was very defensive because I'm like, that's the last, how dare you mm. accuse me of harming not only my people, but myself. I would never. And then once I cooled off and took a few days away from my paper and the reviewer's comments, I came back and I still didn't see it. Mm. But um, I was more, I appreciated that they were looking right. Out, for, I don't know who the reviewer was, but I'm appreciative that they looked out for black women um, and gave me reason to pause and make sure that my intention in this work was still right. present in my writing. Because if it's questionable, then I could tighten some things up. So Right. That is true. Because, I mean, at the end, we are all humans from our own mm-hmm. experience. But I do think it could be beneficial, like how you were a reviewer, if all reviewers were, I don't know, verified that you've had some sort of right. cultural competency training or something. something. That, might, that might be the only blue check I get, honey, because <laughs> my followers are lacking. But uh, <laughs> yeah, something, some sort of training. That is a great point. So in California, it is a requirement for uh, cultural competency training, things like that with your employer. Like, it's, you have to do it mm. um, in, in California. And there's a lot of uh, cultural competency, cultural humility trainings in, in um, healthcare. I have to do it at UCLA. Um, and funny enough, my husband is in IT, but when we moved out here, He's with the same company, but in Georgia, he didn't have to take the training. Oh, when wow. we moved out here, he had to, he had to take a training about, literally, it was in there about microaggressions, certain protections wow. of information, 
how you have conversations with coworkers, which I don't believe in microaggressions, but I don't like that term. But even same company, same everything, but just moving to a different state. And again, the legislation and, you know, people's intention and focus. So it's interesting. Um, and I, I don't think it would hurt anything for everyone to complete something about culture of humility, cultural competency, implicit bias, all those things. Mm. Okay. Well, last question, so I don't hold up the rest of your day. Um, since you've worked in the space um, on the medical side, what do you feel like providers can do? And I know that we've like somewhat like had this conversation, but if it was like a step above just doing a screening, a step above PHQ-9 or Edinburgh, um, what else do you feel like they can do to better catch black mothers that come through who could be experiencing symptoms or to have like a conversation or whatever that case may be, what do you feel like can be another next step? And so that is uh, the basis of my entire life career, (laughs) my program of research. But it, so I feel like a screening tool is made by a certain person with their own perspectives and own lived experiences or their own, you know, research and what their own studies have found. And while many of those um, tools have been used in several different populations across the world, and they say it can detect, you know, postpartum depression in Turkish women and in American women and black women and Irish women, and it's been used. And I mean, just because we've always used it doesn't mean it's the best that, that we could have. And so I'm currently in this space as a clinician, but also as a researcher, like, do we really need a tool Mm. per se? Do we need the score that we're looking for that says, oh, I need to refer you to Keisha so Keisha can help you work through this? Or are you, oh, that score is low enough. I'm sure you're okay. Mm. Like, especially depending on your culture. Yeah. Or depending on your own personal experiences, there may be women who don't want to circle a certain number because they, I mean, you can kind of tell if I, if this question quote unquote looks bad and I answer it like I'm having a hard time, they may take my child away from me. Right. They may report me to family services. I don't want to be getting visits from anyone at my home trying to see how we're living or how I'm treating my kids. So I'm going to answer this in a way that I am doing great. And we don't even have to talk about what Mm -hmm. I'm going through. Um, And other people prefer to have a conversation. They don't want to answer this tool. Like, why are you asking? Why are you sending me another piece of paper to fill out before this appointment when I'm trying to breastfeed or change the diaper or whatever? And so one of the things that I've learned in research is that when we do things, when we conduct research that could benefit the most marginalized, it actually benefits everyone. Mm. And so in my curiosity to see if there's a way to screen for depression in black women that considers that we live in a racialized society, mm. that considers we may constantly be thinking about dying before our child's first birthday or before I even give birth. Mm-hmm. Um, and including all that in a tool, I'm also aware of 
you know, culturally, we are storytellers. Yeah. Um, and so maybe it's not in a tool. Maybe it's three main questions that every provider needs to ask their mothers at different time points. And they may answer in a way that may trigger you to say, okay, let me refer you to Keisha. Mm -hmm. Keisha and her friends, because I know you can't <laughs> take care of everybody. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. um, so you can work through this. Right. Um, so I don't know. And if, if there really are just three questions in a conversation that could be asked, that could benefit every woman out there. Because yeah. I'm sure there are other cultures, other women, based on their own personal experiences, based on their friends' experiences, I'm not writing anything on that piece of paper right. for you to have evidence of something I said or whatever the case may be. So that's that's the journey. That's my that. goal is to figure out what is the best way to assess yeah. for depression as a clinician and then get them to the people who can actually help. No, I them. love that. I think that that would do so much. Um, I think that that would be incredibly effective. And I also think in a utopia, if it was more like integrative care, like if your OBGYN or midwife office also had a therapist and that you were already mm -hmm. like in the process where it doesn't feel like something is wrong with you because this is such a norm. Like, oh, when I see my OB, I see my therapist anyway. So it's nothing new. Um, and yes. if everybody got mental health services in postpartum regardless if you felt like you needed it or not it was just a standard and that would mm. decrease it mm. significantly come on come on with the <laughs> that is so true I'm if just it saying. was not seen as an issue um oh you have postpartum right oh you have well not postpartum even though some people refer to it as that but oh you are depressed oh you have anxiety or you're anxious let me refer you to somebody instead of prenatal visits also include time with mm -hmm. the therapist so we can you know build on these positive skills mm -hmm. or develop healthier coping skill whatever so we can prepare you for the most positive outcome right. versus i don't like reactionary i don't like let's wait until you are depressed so we can pull you out. No, let's have, I think in order to really know if someone is depressed, you have to have a continuous relationship with that person. So Absolutely. whether they tell you they're depressed or not, you can notice a change. Yeah. And so what plan of care model allows a clinician to, to recognize that change without the patient saying anything? It's not the OB, because once you have the baby, you have one visit. Right. It's not necessarily the pediatrician because they don't see you before you have the baby. Right. So it's the doula. Sometimes it's the midwife. Mm -hmm. But it has to be like an ongoing, like you're saying, a model where you're somewhere in, in a practice where you can get care from all these different disciplines in one area. Mm -hmm. That way you also only have to take one day off work, yeah. maybe half a day. Yeah. You only have to drive or find transportation to there once. Mm -hmm. And you, your baby, and your mind can get care in one location. Mm -hmm. Like, that's ideal for I me. Did. I know of a few studies that did that in Michigan that had really good outcomes, but yeah. it's, of course, not like a widespread. Yeah, I remember when, for the practice I went to, for both of my kids, they gave me, after my first visit, they gave me the schedule of all of my appointments. 24 weeks, you'll have this. 30 weeks, you'll have this. And if that was already built 
the therapy sessions already built into the, the schedule, then we already, you know, know. And and that also can do so much help with the education piece of it, mm-hmm. of the mental mm-hmm. health. So you as a, a birthing parent know, oh, these symptoms mean this. Oh, this is what baby blues is. Or this is what postpartum anxiety is. And it doesn't mean that something is wrong with me because I'm not depressed. Because um, I've heard that a lot. Well, I wasn't depressed. I was anxious. But so I, since I wasn't depressed, then I thought I was just fine. But you, mm-hmm. you, you having a panic attack, you know, <laughs> which, when you left alone with your baby. No, that's not Absolutely. okay. Um, mm-hmm. I think that that could be helpful. But that's so true. We'll see. See, you think you don't do research, but that's research. <laughs> that's research. That's an intervention. That's a, okay, this is the existing model of care. Mm-hmm. Let's alter that so that we can include this in the schedule. And let's see how their how women's mental health outcomes are you just did a whole study go find the money yeah go find the money Courtney you go you go get the money (laughs) (laughs) I'll read some clinicians together and do (laughs) yes that's that's the hard part honey finding finding a clinician therapist oh but um thank you so much for being a guest on the show and as always Having these enlightening conversations is always amazing. So I really appreciate you. <laughs> of course. Anytime. Just a kiss and squeeze and hug and girl.